The 2022 Giro d'Italia was supposed to be our eighth on the ground, providing daily coverage of what RCS's marketing men and women have dubbed the hardest race in the most beautiful place. Our first full Corsa Rosa together was in 2016, and yes, that does make it seven to date because in 2020, with pro cycling shut down by COVID, we invented our Giro. That was also when we first collaborated with Divine Cellars of London, curating cases of wine that would take listeners around Italy in much the same way that the race was supposed to. Our great leader, Richard Moore, was enthusiastic about most things, and that extended to consumption of wine, always of course in moderation. Where Richard's characteristic vim somehow seemed to desert him was when he was called to indulge in the verbal navel-gazing that the self-professed amateurs or even connoisseurs among us guiltily practice. Wine, all wine, whether red, white, rosé, orange, fizzy, dry, sweet, or probably even corked, was in Richard's words, or in fact one word, invariably classable as nice. After Richard's passing last month, our dear friend Francois Tomazo probably said it best in our tribute episode. I've always been surprised how someone who could so well describe the subtleties, the intricacies of bike racing, a man with so much insight, with all the right words to tell the tale of something so complicated, could not find a way to describe a great class of wine. Yet I know why that was. It was because as a man so gifted at listening, carrying, leading, boosting, enabling, you knew that all that stuff about wine was bullshit. What you knew, what is true, is that wine is not for crying. Wine is not for whining, wine is for endless laughs, endless talks, endless friendship. That's what wine is about. Here's to you, Richard. Cheers. We contemplated skipping this year's Giro dei Vini, but decided that it is not what Richard would have wanted. Instead, like our whole journey to Hungary and Italy in May, our enological odyssey will be dedicated to the buffalo and bear a name of which he would have approved, La Selezione Simpatica, that is, the nice selection. A percentage of the proceeds from every sale will also go to a charity chosen by Richard's family. The wines themselves are, as ever, surprising, varied, and we think, sorry Rich, a little more than nice. You can find names, vintages, and details of how to order in the show notes. And for the full lowdown on exactly what they are and how they taste, here I am with Greg Andrews and Luciana Girotto, Divine's Italian expert in residence. Morning, Greg. Morning, you and Daniel. I have done this before. We did it last year before the Giro d'Italia. And this year we're, we're joined by a bona fide Italian, not a fake Italian like me, um, for the presentation of our 2022 Giro d'Italia case. We're calling it the Selezione Simpatica, the nice selection, um, in honour of our great leader, friend and, and founder, Richard Moore, who, of course, very, very sadly passed away a few weeks ago. And we wanted to, um, to give the, the case this year that title because, of course, it was a bit of a running joke with us, Richard's lack of appetite, really, for the florid explanations and, and tasting notes that and we're accustomed to using in in wine when we talk about wine we we did have a few days ago in fact i mean one of the pieces written about richard and i knew this the the revelation that he had been the the chairman of the aberdeen university wine society in his youth which is um well it's about the the, the unlikeliest thing i can possibly think of it's like me outing myself as a tottenham hotspur fan um, something which would would, ne would never happen. But that is the, the, the name we've given to the case this year. You guys and I, um, we had what was a pretty heated um, tasting session a few weeks ago. We've been, we've been working, you guys in particular, have been working on, the, on curating this case for a few weeks now, a few months indeed. Um, the announcement of the Giro route a few months ago was greeted with great excitement by us because it gives us the excuse to plot our way around Italy in a viticultural, enological sense. So the challenge was to find six wines that really fit in with the, the character and the geography of the route this year. And I, I think we've done it, but it wasn't without its difficulties, was it, guys? No, I mean, I think the, aside from the Hungarian selection, there were, the, uh, which 
was pretty straightforward. There was just such a wealth of riches to choose from. And I think the, the route this year definitely takes in, in, into account some absolutely phenomenal wine regions that's really worth, uh, worth showcasing. And it was probably, probably more of a, um, you know, a, a selector's nightmare almost where you've got three or four good wines to choose from and it's just a matter of trying to shoehorn them in where you can, really. Um, and I think this year, you know, we've we, we made the conscious decision to avoid similar things to what we did last year as well. So uh, that was probably one of the easier, more, easier facets of the conversation, really, where we said, right, we had that last year. We want to do something different. We want to take people to showcase something different from the, one of the many, many fabulous wines that Italy produces, really. Yes. So, um, and I think obviously having having you know with with Luciana's experience, I don't know whether we unearthed more fabulous wines than <laughs> it came. But, but the good thing is, really, really happy with the final selection in terms of what we're going to be able to showcase and some some of the ethos and some of the some of the varieties we've got there. Really, yes. so I agree with uh, with Greg. The more you have to choose, the more difficult it is to narrow down and get the right. Um, decision really. So we had a fantastic array of producer and great variety to squeeze in. And uh, we also tried to um, have something new that uh, people is not get used to normally to buy or to test or to drink. And But also uh, if it needs to be a classic one, it needs to be absolutely outstanding and true to the terroir and the, the area where they come from. That's This is Lionel interrupting the wine chat briefly to tell you that the cycling podcast coverage of the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Super Sapiens, which as you'll know by now is a system of continuous glucose monitoring to help you learn how your body reacts to the food you eat so you can manage your energy levels for optimum performance. The Giro is an endurance event for us journalists too, fueling strategy and energy management are key to peak podcasting performance. So, starting with our Giro preview next week, I'll be acting as a glucose monitoring guinea pig. I'll be wearing the Super Sapiens sensor and keeping an eye on my blood glucose levels to see what I can learn about fueling and fatigue. Go to supersapiens.com to find out more about Super Sapiens. The Cycling Podcast is also supported by Science in Sport, who began sponsoring us at the start of the 2016 Giro, which started in the Netherlands and was won by Vincenzo Nibali. In fact, it was largely thanks to Science in Sport that we were able to add daily coverage of the Giro and then the Vuelta to our already established Tour de France coverage. Science in Sport have been with us ever since, and if you count our Giro, which was our virtual romp around Italy during the Covid lockdown of 2020, this is our eighth Giro with Science in Sport. You can get 25% off all Science in Sport products to keep you fueled before, during and after your ride by going to scienceinsport.com and using the code SISCP25 at checkout. I said it was difficult, chaps. It was, it was combative. Um, the, the meeting we had a few weeks ago, the discussions, and it's been controversial as well. I, I remember last year we had a few... Well, a few notable regions, some very notable wines that were snubbed that didn't make the final selection. And you know, this year we've snubbed uh, Piemonte, Piedmont, probably the most the most illustrious Italian wine region, and there were others as well that that had to be culled um, again in the name of presenting, showcasing, introducing people to to different wines, different tastes, um, things that they're not familiar with. But guys, before we we really get our teeth into the root. Greg, last year we had your your rags to riches wine wine origin story. I think it was last year when you told us about how you started off life as a I don't know whether it was a, a humble washer upper at the Conran at the at one of the Conran restaurants or or wait or waiter anyway. Maybe I'm doing you a disservice. Um, Luciana, um, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, I know you're from the northeast of Italy. You're from the Friuli region. Um, but how did you come uh, to work well, in I wine? I grew up in restaurants. Uh, despite my dad was uh, uh, into army and but with great passion of fruit, food and wine. So he sent all, almost all the, uh, his children to hospitality school and uh, I was one of them. And uh, I was lucky also to have great mentors 
either for wine producer or sommelier, Italian sommelier, then took me through uh, the, my career, really. And uh, so I became sommelier very early stage. I would say almost uh, underage because I was, you know, um, presented by great, great people to do the school of sommelier in Italy. And then uh, I carry on this career for almost more than 30 plus years. So I came in London. In Italy, I was working always with Michelin star restaurant. And in London, I was really working for the first Italian uh, with a restaurant with a Michelin star. And then I developed my career in wine buyer. And, uh, you know, I arrived in Divine. So in four or five years ago. And Luciana, just tell me, when you came to the United Kingdom, what were some of the, the misconceptions or preconceptions about Italian wine that you saw in the, in the UK market or, or things that you did or didn't like about um, the way the UK market viewed Italian wine? I would say then the iconic wines such as Chianti, um, Suave, uh, Lambrusco, uh, then they, have a, they had a very bad reputation. And, uh, and through the last 20, 20 years, we really, especially for the Italian sommelier point of view and uh, effort, we really tried to change the mentality. Uh, first with our suppliers and ask them to uh, import uh, great wines that they were not discovered yet in this country and to import them for, for us to, to work and to present them in, a, in restaurants, and then uh, really to educate us, uh, new generations of sommelier, but also consumers as well, to change the perception of uh, these great, great classic uh, Italian wines. So slowly, you know, we, we, we achieve <laughs> the, 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 the goal. Uh, I have to say my last uh, crusade is Lambrusco now, so I try to <laughs> uh, convince them You've succeeded yes. this one, Luke. Yes, on then, that one. then uh, we got a fantastic Lambrusco. But also, I have to say, in Italy, we really change uh, the, the winemaking and uh, new generation of uh, winemakers. No matter, not just in Lambrusco, but also with, uh, from Chianti. They, there was a fantastic project in 2000 for Sangiovese to make uh, uh, a better wine. And, uh, and in Suave as well, so we great, great potential of this wine that can age a long time. Well, we will, we will get to Italy soon enough after three days of the Giro, because of course this year the Grande Partenza is in Hungary. Fortunately for us guys, uh, a country that is, that is pretty well known for its wine. Um, and pretty well known for one wine in particular, which is Tokai. But when we think about Tokai, usually people think about a sweet wine. Um, and you guys have selected for us a, a wine that is from Tokai, which is in the northwest of Hungary. We're not actually visiting that region, unfortunately, with the Giro, but um, it's close enough. You've selected for us a, a, a wine that bears that name, a Tokai, but it's a dry white wine. Greg, since... Um, as I said, we'll get to Italy soon enough and Luciana will have ample time and space to talk about everything Italian. Maybe you can start us off with this um, Chateau Meglia. So dry ferment is very much the, the workhorse of the Hungarian dry white wine scene. Uh, I'd say certainly all the wines we see here in the UK, it represents 60% of, of all the Hungarian white wines we see. Uh, there are a few other varieties like Hush Levu, uh, which... Again, is grown in and around Tokai, you know. And while there are a few regions, a lot of them sort of more focus on, on reds, really. So for us, in terms of it, this is probably the easiest choice of this year's selection yes. in terms of something that offered such great value, but also took people on a sort of slightly different different path where you get, you know, I, I think you get some lovely sort of white peach flavours, albeit dry, and then with some cracked pepper in the background, and you know, it, I think it's quite an underrated dry variety, really. And we we've had a hell of a lot of success over the years converting Sauvignon Blanc customers across to ferment, uh, because you know everyone 
everyone craves something different now again. Great wine for the summer, which obviously, if the British weather actually turns up this year, we might actually have, <laughs> have some warmth. At least we've got some sunshine at the moment. Uh, but yeah, but particularly really, really good to sort of go with, uh, you know, go with fish, you know, a lot of fish dishes this would work really well with, especially especially with your sort of softer sauces. I wouldn't necessarily say a fish curry, but certainly things like, uh, you know, even grilled fish or any, any sort of white fish, this particular wine I think would work extremely well because I think you're not going to overshadow those delicate flavours of lychee and white peach, but equally you're going to get something that's, that has a little bit of zest to it and is a bit uplifting actually. Um, Tokai, chaps, is so famous in Hungary that it's mentioned in the national anthem. Did you know that? I wasn't I aware. I wasn't aware. But it, it is it's a, it is really the the number one region in Hungary. Uh, you know, the it's the only region in Hungary where wine absolutely dominates the landscape. Yes. Um, you know, you literally there's no every spare piece of dirt is being used for grape production. And to be fair, the only other region I've seen that possibly gets close to that uh, is Champagne. You know, Champagne certainly does in Bordeaux, but in a lot of other regions, you just don't see that level of density. You really don't. You know, there's, there's no other agriculture in Tokai at all. Yes, know. yes. And it, by also from an Italian point of view, especially from a Friuli point of view, I have to say then, um, for me, it's important also to choose this wine because for us, um, there is a tale that Comte Formentini from Friuli Venezia Giulia went to Hungary because his, uh, his wife was an Hungarian princess and took uh, full mint to them. And so we are a bit upset. I'm still a bit upset that Hungary <laughs> stole the name of Tokai. <laughs> they won't even let the Italians use it anymore no, either. No, no, no. So it's important that we make a statement to choose this lovely wine in our selection. <laughs> well, maybe maybe Luciana after three days of the Giro we'll kidnap the Fulmint and we'll take it back to Italy we'll yes, take it back to Italy why Sicily. not why not <laughs> first of all Luciana you and I when we did meet for the tasting a few weeks ago we had a interesting discussion about not wine but about Sicily in general and um, it's always really interesting to get the viewpoint of Italians about Sicily because a bit like with me, it tends to be a, a sort of love-hate relationship that a lot of Italians have with Sicily. Some people absolutely fall head over heels in love with Sicily and they always return there on their holidays. And others go once and vow never to return. And you explained to me that um, your relationship with Sicily has gone through a few stages as well in your life. Yes, yes. When the first time I went with my, uh, with my parents and I was a teenager, really um, unaware of going to a completely different world. Uh, but because historically, uh, I come from a land and between Slavic um, countries and Austria, so and by, yeah, for centuries. And Sicily has been a crossword of different influence from Arabic to Normand and, uh, and, and Spanish. So, um, it is a completely different attitude of, towards life. Uh, a land of great thinker and, uh, and a lot of history. Um, and uh, going for the first time unaware that they can prepare a whole lunch without water for me was a, a cultural shock. So, <laughs> and uh, somebody um, wiser than me told me, you know, if you go to the south of Italy, especially in Sicily, you need to leave your attitude at home and embrace everything what comes to you and you will really learn to enjoy it and that's what i did so and since then i really treasure every visit in, in sicily and mind you then between west and east there are completely different um experience so you really see the the west part of the, the island and is windy is uh, very quiet they dry slowly, they live slowly as they have the time of their life. And in the East part is more, uh, let's say, up to the beat. Uh, 
more luscious as well, more different food as well. And they are really more aware than we can do something today because tomorrow who knows what's happened. Uh, it is quite fascinating. They're so different. They even spell arancini and arancine different, <laughs> differently, <laughs> which we've spoken about before on the podcast. Maybe we'll get into that again when yeah. we when we go down there this year. But you, you talked about it being well, quite alien to someone from the north of Italy. This first wine we've got the Vigna di Elli. Um, that is from a part of Sicily, which well, it really does feel alien to anyone because it's a sort of well, it's the northern slopes of Mount Etna. Um, black soil and um, well the the gentleman that set set up this winery and um, is also associated with a, a property called the tenuta the delle terre nere i think literally the property of the the black earth and um, the the soil is literally black because it's the north side of mount etna it, isn't it it is pure um correct me if i'm wrong pumas so it's very yeah. uh, soft uh, ash and you really need to have a special food um, um, uh, footwear to to go to see to work in the vineyard because you really your feet will go down, and the um, the slopes are very steep, and sometimes you need a little lift to carry um, tools of, of grapes because really they are fun- it's a fantastic landscape. Uh, vineyards and especially from this winery are uh, between. 20 and over 100 years old. Um, they are normally at Alberello trailing, so very small uh, bush vine. And uh, the Vigna di Eli is a, a, a project that Mar de Grazia, the owner of Terrenere, Tenuta del Terrenere, had uh, when he purchased some uh, small vineyards. And they were tiny, small, and pretty. And uh, uh, he was thinking about uh, his daughter, Elisa the name of uh, his daughter and uh, she's absolutely uh, bright bright uh, young girl so she draw every uh, labels of uh, the wines and every dia is different and part of the money of uh, Vigne di Eli uh, goes to a hospital of sick children in Florence. Marde Grazia is half American, is half Italian and uh, his house also is uh, confined with his hospital, and it has been always uh, part of uh, uh, his interest to get something to be involved about with hospital uh, on these children. And it's quite a famous hospital as well, I know, in, in Italy, because it does a lot of good for sick children in general. Uh, and the wine itself, I mean, we talked about the, this volcanic soil, but the wine itself was a real surprise to me because it's quite light in colour, but... Um, I know that this area around the north of Etna has come to be known almost as the, 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 the Italian answer to Burgundy. And the wine itself has certain similarities to Burgundy. As I said, it's quite light in colour, but also it has a bit of spice. There was a little bit of, um, a little bit of Cote de Rhone about, uh, about the wine with the, the sort of peppery yes. spiciness of it. Yes, the, the grape variety incorporate a bit of um, uh, Pinot Noir uh, characteristics, which are the classic strawberry, the fresh cut herbs or grass, and a bit of pepperiness of the Syrah or Grenache. Light in color, yes, because the characteristic of Nerello Mascalese and Nerello Cappuccio, these are the main grape variety that uh, you should have in any Etna Red, uh, gives these... Um, lovely rose, uh, right dry rose, strawberry, and uh, herbal note. And is the, the tannins are quite fine, not very intrusive and you know, um, accentuated like could be in a biolo or an alianico, uh, but they're still there. And uh, is, there is uh, the tradition of um, using chestnut uh, oak to give it a roundness of the wine. Well, Guys, when we met met up a couple of weeks ago, it was well. Greg, you mentioned the the weather and and if the you were asking if the British summer is ever going to arrive, it was an unseasonably warm. I think it was a an early March day or February day, and um, we drank quite a few light reds that day. And this brings me to our next wine, um, because we we had a sort of provisional lineup of 
of wines for this year and and i decided that we were lacking something with a bit more heft a bit more density a bit of a darker color and we had again we had a bit a good old tussle over this and we eventually came to um having had for stages four and five really the etna rosso um we came to our third wine which we will enjoy as the race moves up the peninsula so on stage 10 we start from pescara and very close to Pescara is the Cantina Rapino, and they make uh, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. And yeah, this is the the real, well, as far as I'm concerned, the blockbuster red for this year because it, it shocked me, Luciana, and um, delighted me because, as I said, very dense, a real sort of beef stew, a real sort of savory wine. I saw someone describe it as um, having notes of hoisin sauce, which I thought was fantastic because it really does taste yes, like that. Indeed. Um, so tell us, Greg, maybe you start, tell me a bit about this one. So the, the Rapino itself was very much the dark horse because I think, as you said, you know, as you rightly said, we'd, we'd come to our conclusion and we, we wanted to do something from Piedmont, but this, the straight, I, we'd had this in a, in a sample case that we'd set, been sent just before you'd arrived. Um, and I think it blew me away, not just the fact that I think here in the UK, the general perception about Montepulciano is it's a, it's a wine you have with pizza or pasta and it's, to use a, use a line from one of my customers, it's a Tuesday night bottle of wine, you know. I thought you were going to say yeah. smashable. Yeah, so, um, smashable yeah, or quaffable. And as well, it's, you know, a lot of Montepulciano isn't taken seriously. And I think you and I had this conversation last year where, you know, there's, you know, there are some absolutely fab- fabulous producers um, and, I, you know, we wanted to do something that changed people's perception of Montepulciano and I think um, this particular one, you know, rightly said, it has the heft, it, had, it has the depth, but it also has on its side a bit of vintage. So, you know, it gives us the opportunity and we don't get this opportunity with the, the wines in the podcast cases to put something in that's, as old as this i mean this is a this wine is now seven years old yes you know and i think that that in itself is worthwhile celebrating in terms of it's good to give people a snapshot of something that something that's made to age it's been made you know it it's been made as a serious wine in terms of it it's got some depth it's got some it's got some weight behind it and age does benefit wines like that and i think i think more than anything else um this particular producer, you know, sung out to us. I mean, we, we tasted it the first time with you and I think it was quite remarkable that all of us in the store were like, yes, this is what, this this can take those people who are generally accustomed to drinking Montepulciano on a Tuesday night with their with their, their pizza or their pasta to something. If you drink Montepulciano on a Tuesday, what do you drink <laughs> yeah, on a Monday? With something like this, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting. Customers give wines a nice terminology, but yeah, this. But generally, it for people for wines people don't think about. They call them a sort of midweek wine, really. And I think um, this definitely transcends that, and is definitely definitely at the higher end of the table, which is a good thing. I think you know, yes. it really is. I mean. Those depth of flavours, I mean, you're sort of throwing beef at the equation, you're throwing all sorts now, and I think it's definitely taking you into a different place. And that's and that's a great thing, you know, in terms of we don't see this side of Montepulciano that often, you know, here in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting also Then I mean, uh, we discover a new uh, real character of a wine producer because it's very... Uh, it comes from a for generation of farmers and it's quite straightforward, genuine, um, down to earth. And uh, I think uh, his wine uh, really reflects who is the, the, the makers as well, the winemakers. And it's, it's a joy really to discover uh, these people and the wine world really gives you plenty of opportunity to get to know these fantastic uh, uh, I, I was reading Luchan. I was reading Luchan that this family they used to make table yes. grapes and and they decided to switch to making wine one year. I think it was in the early seventies when um, a hailstorm ruined their harvest. Of course, in we're used to hearing the opposite, or certainly we're used to hearing um, that hail is the absolute bet noir of, of 
of winemakers and it usually forces them to consider switching away from winemaking altogether because it can absolutely ruin their livelihood. But in this case, it was almost the opposite. Yes, but often comes uh, in terms of wine uh, icons, wine. Uh, in Italy, I would say then uh, great ones are, they happen just because an accident, because you forgot the uh, the fermentation and then Amarone will become a great wine. So, but Amarone start as a sweet wine. And just because somebody forgot uh, to stop the fermentation, it become dry. Uh, the sort of thing. So there is quite a, quite plenty of these <laughs> um, unusual story, and uh, it's a sort of blessing disguise, as you say. And this is exactly a fantastic example. So from table grape, and they weren't pretty enough to be sold. They decided to make a, a wine and a fantastic wine to sold straight away, and then from there they decided to plant more vines to make wine. I said that hail was often the bête noire of winemakers, but I suppose the next wine was the has been the bête noire of Italian wine's reputation in the UK, or was for a long time, um, because there was a period, I guess, in the going back now to the eighties, seventies, when if you'd said Italian wine to someone and what was the first thing that came into their head they would say the fatal word Lambrusco but we have gone for a Lambrusco this year as part of your crusade as you described it I think Luciana to restore the reputation of, La- of Lambrusco or help do that you don't have to do it with us because already on the podcast over the years in the last few years whenever we've gone to um, Emilia Romagna so the central region Oh, one of the central regions of Italy, the region where Lambrusco is produced. We've always taken the opportunity to um, drink some Lambrusco and always really enjoyed it. But this year we've gone for the Fiorini um, Becorosso um, Lambrusco. And um, well, just first of all, Luciana, talk to me a little bit about how the, the boom and bust of Lambrusco was experienced in Italy and how producers in Lambrusco have gone about trying to change their image internationally at least? I think uh, um, it started because they uh, noticed that the cells weren't good enough and they had the patrimony of uh, an area of different grape variety. They are still Lambrusco but they are seven, eight different varieties of Lambrusco. And um, they were sitting in a uh, sea of Lambrusco and not selling it because the bad reputation. And uh, so the new generation really started to think and say, we need to go back to uh, the origin and uh, get great uh, wines. Uh, Refermented in bottle is possible rather than big tank. Um, try to cut the cheap market and try to focus in quality and uh, target different market. And uh, the result has been a bit painful because really there are uh, still preconcept of this wonderful wine, but it doesn't want to be a, a super Toscan or a wine that needs to be a great occasion to be open. And slowly we are really reaching the point then to have more fantastic product than, rather than uh, wishy-washy uh, example than we have still um, in mind. And the uh, Fiorini family really is almost a hundred years old uh, winery. And then they are more famous for the, um, let's say, uh, Bassami vinegar, because they come from, uh, from really a, one of the historical um, villages where they make fantastic vinegar but also they they had several vineyards of Lambruscos and they really have a focus also to make good Lambrusco. Then I've been you known them for, for many years and they always never disappoint me really. And you say, um, or you mentioned their heritage as balsamic vinegar producers. Of course balsamic vinegar is from the Modena region and that's where we are with this wine. It's stage 11. Um, the race goes pretty close to the winery itself in Savignano sul Panaro. And the well, in case anyone gets a surprise and has not drunk Lambrusco before, we're talking about a fizzy red wine in 
in effect. Um, and Luciano, you said, you mentioned there the production method. Um, is all Lambrusco now, is it traditional method? Is it the champagne method fermented in the bottle? Uh, no, there are still um, some producers that they prefer to make the Lambrusco in a big container, which is absolutely fine. Uh, Lambrusco characteristic is uh, a nice, uh, creamy, frothy um, perlage and uh, very venous. Uh, traditional, there is also a off-dry version. So if you uh, uh, incur a dry, off-dry or sweet version, it's not then is just because it's fashion, but because really traditionally in some part of, uh, of Emilia-Romagna, they make a uh, sweet version. Um, in general, it's dry, and uh, um, yes, the, the, the re-fermented, the ancestral method, as we call it, is starting to be more um, Greg, spread. what night of the week are we drinking Lambrusco? You know, it's definitely Thursday, Friday evening on this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, you, we need, uh, you need fat food, and Emilia-Romagna is a land of all salami possible, all the cool cuts then they, they, yeah. in the earth, they are there. Plus the gnocco fritto then is a beautiful puff pasta then they fry and on the top you put a, more, a slice of mortadella, you got parmigiano reggiano, you got all the cheeses possible, fantastic stew, pasta, tortellini, so you name it, we can yeah. carry on endlessly. Yeah. No. I should um, I should also say, guys, that this year the Giro d'Italia has introduced something um, different. Um, for a few years now, we've had a wine stage, and this year it's going to be up in Lombardia, and it's um, the wine that they are sort of honouring, promoting on that day, Sforzato wine from up in Valtellina. Um, but there, there's also, as of this year, there's going to be a food stage. And this indeed is the food stage. And um, they're particularly going to be emphasizing Parmigiano Reggiano, so Parmesan cheese, which again, um, you mentioned the fantastic um, gastronomy of this region, Luciana, famous for, well, Parma ham, famous for balsamic vinegar, famous for Parmigiano Reggiano, among other cheeses. Well, I've already mentioned that we're snubbing Piemonte, as we well, as we work our way up the peninsula, and this this year, as we get to the northern regions, we start to go clockwise around Italy and loop back to or through the Alps and to the Dolomites. So, um, unfortunately, no Barolo, no Barbaresco this year. I mean, our excuse for that is that we're going to leave our listeners latitude to go off on that day and source their own Barbaresco, Barolo, Dolcetto, or whatever else they choose. And we, in our, our famous tasting, this tasting now, it's going to be, the more we talk about it, it's going to start to be known in the wine world as something akin to the the the, Paris, the judgment of Paris in <laughs> 1976, a very famous yeah. event in the wine world, the, the cycling podcast tasting of um, March 2022. But we did discuss Dolcetto and, and um, there were a couple of other Piedmontese wines that nearly made the cut, but alas, they didn't. Um, and the next wine we come to is going to be one from your neck of the woods, Luciana and Friuli, and it's uh, a really curious wine called. Uh, is it? Well, I'll let you say it because it's the the name is is sort of uh, Friulano. Yes, I'm not really Italian. <laughs> it's dois raps. It means uh, dois raps, which are two, two bunches. Yes, yes, um, that's it. Yes, perfect. Two bunches, yeah, and well, I mentioned, <laughs> and I mentioned the. Well, the, the fact that it's not Italian. I mean, this region, we discussed it a lot last year in the in the podcast. And we did an episode, I think we called it Frontierland, on this fantastic region that you're from, um, Friuli. Um, Luciano, this fabulous melting pot of different landscapes, languages, shifting borders, um, a few sort of dark chapters in in recent history. And, and fantastic wine as well, fantastic white wine. So tell us a little bit about this one. Yes, well, we chose this uh, unfashionable uh, area of the Friuli Venezia Giulia, really. Normally, if you uh, know a wine from this region is from Coglio, from Cogli, uh, Cogli Orientali or near Trieste, then they produce um, 
great white wines and Argento Rias, they are more uh, worldwide famous. Um, this wine from the Russolo family is from Le Grave, so it's like Le Grave. Uh, grave because uh, there are vineyards between uh, uh, riverbeds and the soil is normally sandy and uh, with a lot of pebbles. So there are a lot of rocks and is the characteristic of the area. So it is quite a, a I would say almost romantic <laughs> and um, very, um, very agriculture as well as a area. And the, uh, the Russolo are not escaping the space. So uh, again, they are always being uh, into uh, wine and they finally they were able to uh, purchase a, a, a property in, around in 1970 and the new generation now um, have a new winery, try to develop, um, take it always the basic on, on machines in the winery, but it focus more on, on the vineyard. So they got the classic uh, variety then uh, some are uh, traditional from there, which is uh, could be a Malvasia and a Refosco, but also um, they become our from the last 20 years, so like a Chardonnay, Sauvignon, and um, a Merlot. Uh, in this case, it's a white wine and is a blend of Sauvignon and Pinot Grigio, uh, picked in a really ripe overripe uh, state. So we got this a fantastic um, aromatic uh, uh, compound that gives you the, also the lush, the lushness of these, uh, the texture of, of this wine. Mm, flower notes uh, between fresia, geranium, and the beautiful tropical fruit. The opinion is not split over this wine, um, certainly based on, on what I've read about it. It seems to be a resounding hit with pretty much everyone. Um, I should say that this wine will be ideal to drink on stage 19 because the well, you mentioned where it's from, uh, Luciana. It's actually from the province of Pordenone, which we don't go through, but it's just the other side of the Tagliamento River. We'll be on the east side with the race, and this is just on the almost on the west bank of the Tagliamento River. Wine six, well, the Giro finishes at Ver in Verona this year. Um, Luciana really wanted us to go for a Valpolicella. I was a bit sceptical, Valpolicella. I mean, you mentioned um, earlier, Luciana, the sort of big brands of Italian wine that built up quite a bad reputation over the years. Um, I would include Valpolicella in that. There was a lot of probably pretty ropey stuff imported to the UK and consequently my my image of Valpolicella has not been the most positive but you're determined to change it Luciana and what do you what what do you make of um or what, what are your views on Valpolicella generally Greg? Well I think we we will often sell a Valpolicella as uh I suppose someone who might be looking for an Amarone or something but don't necessarily have the budget for that, uh, you know, because Amarone generally for a decent one, you're talking 40, 50 pounds a bottle. So uh, so generally, you know, I think in the main, most people view that as a special occasion wine. Uh, so with Valpolicella, we wanted something that sort of is soft, relatively luscious, but equally easily enjoyable. And I think Valpolicella, the better made Valpolicellas, shall we say, should exude that, and then of course you have Rapasso, Then you you know as you work work up the scale. But the reality is, I think they it it's it's a really good sort of I think it's a really good strong medium bodied wine to give people who who want something that's quite soft, luscious, but not necessarily overly tannic. And I think this this offers that consumer something that they can it is relatively easy drinking, but equally. It offers them a glimpse of something, you know, something a little bit more luxurious and opulent. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you want to think that they're drinking an Amarone when they have a Valpolicella, I'm sure. But, you know, the reality is, you know, it it, it is a nice progression point to Amarone. And it does vary from vintage to vintage. Some vintages, some producers offer a little more weight. Than, but 
I think this is brilliantly sort of balanced and sort of sits perfectly for for what we're looking to do uh, or what most people are looking to drink sort of, you know, it, it's un, I, I would say it's uncomplicated. Oh, uh, yes, you know, I think absolutely. We, you know, so... Um, Lou, what would you? How would you position the the Valpolicella? Uh, I I must say then, according to the local people from Valpolicella uh, Valley, uh, really the wine Valpolicella is the most authentic product of the area. It is not Amarone. Amarone through the year became a a wine to sell to um, a foreigner uh, market rather than consume. In, uh, in the area. So I should say, just, just to interrupt you um, for a second, um, Luciana, Yes. You, you mentioned consumption in the area. Well, the, the locals in that area are, are kind of famous, infamous for drinking quite a lot of wine and alcohol, aren't they? I think there are, there are various statistics about the... Well, certainly they produce... The <laughs> province of Verona um, produces more wine than any other province in Italy. And, um, well, if you believe what people in Italy say, then the, the inhabitants of of Verona also drink rather a lot. <laughs> yes, indeed, but Veneto is probably the second region in Italy as a production of wine. Uh, and Verona really contributed largely. Uh, but it's, yes, exactly. So the Valpolicella is the, the really the quintessentially a product from the area. So still with, uh, made with either Corvina, Corvinone, Rondinella, uh, I know some producers that really focus just in Corvina because they think it's the best grapes to make Valpolicella, which is a nice, crisp, peppery, um, uh, full of raspberry, and really um, there is a bit of violet and, and camphor. Um, then combined with, uh, with everything, it's, just, it's a savory wine and goes absolutely well with it. Uh, Again, for something that they eat over there, so you got uh, this um, a bolito misto that is fantastic with Valpolicella and or grey salami as well. So this, again, another um, good example of a fantastic matching the local food with the local wine. Fantastic. Well, that will take us to the end of the Giro Chaps. And I'm sure by that time, our listeners will, will have had a fantastic time drinking their way um, with our case around Italy and the Giro. But just finally, Greg, I was going to ask you um, to talk a little bit about your interactions with some of our listeners um, since we started this initiative, this venture with the Giro that never was in 2020. Um, I know that uh, well, you've been yeah. infused yeah. particularly by the level of enthusiasm shown by our listeners for discovering Italian wines thanks to our Giro cases. Definitely. I mean, do we, it's, it's great to see sort of the, the cycling podcast listeners even cycle up to our, cycle up to the shop you know, and sort of want to come in for advice. But I think we've certainly what what we've noticed more than the other tours is the level of interest on the wines from the Giro. People do sort of contact us again and say, that was really great. Can you get me? Especially the Dirty Prosecco was probably the most memorable, actually. Um, we had we had half a dozen, you know, we had quite a few customers come back to us and say, look, really, really love this. It's it's not what we normally think of Prosecco. Can we grab a case? You know, and and that is that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, the fact that sort of people have sort of taken that on board, and in some respects prepared to let us take them on a bit of an adventure, really. And I think you know, for for us, that's that probably best sums up is the most gratifying thing about doing the the Giro the Giro selection that we're able to introduce people to something something new, something they didn't think about before, and I think. Um, I think that it, that also encapsulates why we love doing what we do. You know, it it really does. But it's been it's been great. I mean, people, you know, the the tasting we did here in December was was fabulous in terms of connecting up with some of your some of your listenership as well. And then, and I think here getting their first hand feedback is is tremendous. And the, and as I said, helping helping them take take everyone on the you know take them on a journey is just a fabulous benefit to what we do i suppose so but yeah definitely i think the colfondo prosecco was the fate was definitely the favorite of the wines we've done in Giro. definitely well, well certainly i think greg with our cases so far one of the themes has been smashing 
stereotypes, busting myths about, yeah. well, precisely things like Lambrusco, Valpolicella, which hopefully we'll do to a certain extent this year. We haven't really yep. taken aim at something like Chianti yet, but no doubt we'll get oh, to Chianti. that in the future. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's one of the that's one of the joys from my point of view, our point of view as well. There are so many of these um, sort of preconceived ideas about Italian wine based on how they were sold 20 or 30 years ago that are, are slowly being peeled back as the years go by. Thanks to, as Luciana says, I mean, it's it's remarkable when you read about so many Italian wineries now um, and the story is, is the same one. It's of a new generation taking over um, the family winery and, and trying to do something different and, yes. and dragging Italian wine, making sort of kicking and screaming into the 21st century and doing it very successfully because the Italians, something I always say, Luciana, the Italians are great innovators yes. um, when the, when yeah. they're given the opportunity. And I've seen it as well with, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, with craft beers and, yeah. you know, how the new generations have, have embraced that and um, are, are very dynamic. It's good to see them making a lot of headway. Yes, I think uh, um, we are able to improve all the time the aesthetic of any product. Uh, we want the, the, the best, the most beautiful, and we are always in search of these, uh, maybe it's a bit shallow, but in a way it's our, it's our inner um, uh, personality. So we want something beautiful to drink, to eat, to wear, mm. and to see, or to listen. And to and to show off to other people in the name of, of hospitality. Of <laughs> hospitality. I mean, of that's course. one of the things. Definitely yeah. one of the themes. Definitely one of the themes of the Giro for me is that the hospitality in the sense of that the spirit behind the hospitality, the the desperate desire for you as a guest to have a good time and to go away and to to speak yes. positively about what yes. you've eaten, what you've seen, what you've tasted, and. And I'm not going to say that's unique to Italy, but I think it's definitely more pronounced in Italy than it would be in certain other European countries that I shan't mention. Agree. <laughs> well, well, well presented, definitely. Thank you. Well, thank you guys. It's been it's been enlightening and entertaining as always, and we look forward to drinking our way round the Giro. Thanks to you and with you again. So, chin chin. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.